scripture reading this morning will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. If you're using one of the supplied Red Pew Bibles, it would be on number 971. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14, page 971. This Apostles Paul closing to the Corinthian letter, his greetings and benediction. And I'll read, finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace and the God of love and the peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and all the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you imagine God to be, who you imagine him to be, what you believe him to be like, it's the most important thing about you because that will shape the way we see reality. The way I see God will shape the way I see life and the purpose of life. The way I see God is going to shape and it's going to mold the decisions that I make. So what you and I think about God really is a critical thing. There's a fancy word for the study of God. When I was in high school, I took biology. Biology is the study of living things. The fancy word for the study of God is theology, T-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Every single one of us is a theologian. We may be better or worse theologians, but we're a theologian nonetheless, because everybody, every human being that lives on this planet has some kind of thought about who God is and what he's like. Consider this. There are people out there who are atheists, and an atheist will say, I know that there is no God. That's his premise that he's basing all of the rest of his life decisions upon. I know there is no God. Therefore, there are consequences that come from that. You think about somebody who is an agnostic. An agnostic is different from an atheist because an agnostic says, I do not know whether there is a God. And some agnostics will go farther and say, nobody can know whether there is a God. But they have thoughts about God one way or another. They're theologians. Others are theologians this way. They are polytheistic. They believe in many gods. Poly, meaning many. Theist, meaning God. And so someone who believes in a pantheon or a, a, a number of gods, any one of whom could receive worship, that person is known as a polytheist. When you read through the pages of your Old Testament, you'll find people who worshiped idols. Most of the people in the Old Testament were polytheistic. And God kept calling his people back to monotheism. Worship me and worship me alone. I am the only God. Everybody's a theologian though. There are people out there who are animistic. And that has to do with the worship of nature or the worship of ancestors or the worship of creation. 
I worship the things that I see, the sun and the moon, the stars, the trees, the plants, the animals, animism. There are also people in the world who are known as Christians. And a New Testament Christian says this, God is one and God has revealed himself through scripture. By scripture, the Christian refers to the Bible, the 66 books that have been revealed to us. And there are a couple of things that Christians ought to think about as we consider the nature of the God that we serve. We need to consider, first of all, the Bible indicates that it's possible for us to know that there is a God without the Bible, without ever seeing a copy of the Bible. We can know that there is a God because we know that something created all the design and order and intricacy in the world in which we live. Romans chapter one, verses 20 through 22 speaks of this. We are without excuse if we say there is no God, but if I want to know what God is like, if I want to know who he is, what it is that he thinks and what he imagines the the world to be like and why he created the world in the first place, if I want those answers, I must go to the revelation that comes from him. It's a very different study, but we need to understand and appreciate the accuracy and the reliability and the evidences for those things that are found in the, in the Bible and the scriptures. Is the Bible accurate? Is it reliable? And if it is, and I believe that it is, and there's a great case to be made for that, if the Bible is accurate, true, reliable, then what, if anything, does it tell me about the God that I'm to worship? What I think about God, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let's spend some time this morning considering the nature of God. And by the nature of God, I'm referring specifically to the fact that God is said to be triune in nature. He is said to be three in one. Before we stop and say, okay, I'm I'm checking out now. This is not anything that relates to me. You know, I've got problems. I've got bills to pay. I've got got work issues and I've got drama at home. And and this doesn't have anything to do with me. Let me just kindly say this. If what I think about God is the most important thing about me, and if God is revealed in scripture to be triune, shouldn't I spend time appreciating God his majesty and his worth and his wonder. But even more than that, there are consequences that flow from a misunderstanding of God's nature. We're gonna talk about some of those as we spend time dealing with this. There are practical consequences in your life and mine. If I believe, for example, that Jesus is created, or if I believe, for example, that God is three separate individual beings, and there are consequences to those kinds of things when we worship and when we sing praises to God and when we observe the Lord's Supper, we may well be guilty of idolatry if we don't have a proper understanding of who God is. Therefore, this is relevant. It does make a difference. And these are matters that are not subject to negotiation or discussion. What I wanna do this morning is this. I wanna first of all state very clearly what I believe the Bible teaches about the nature, the three-in-one nature of God. I'm just going to state it in our first point. Then we're going to spend some time looking through our Old Testament and our New Testament at a number of passages that sustain the doctrine. And then we'll talk finally about the consequences or the importance or the implications 
of these things for our lives and for the lives of others. All right, number one this morning, the doctrine stated, when we talk about the triune nature of God, the three-in-one nature of God, the Bible in three propositions would make this case. Number one, there is one God. Only one exists. There are not many gods. The Bible sometimes uses accommodative terminology to describe God as the great king above all gods, but the indication that Scripture consistently gives is there are not many gods. There are just gods that have been invented by people. There is just one, only one. Second proposition is this, that God exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God existing as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is a being unlike which you have ever met. There's nobody else like him. There's nobody else that is even close to what he is like. He is one, and yet he exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. More of that more about that in a moment. And maybe you look at those two things and you say, well, that, that kind of, okay, I, I can wrap my mind around that. that. That makes some sense. I don't understand it all, but okay. It's this third part that really causes some consternation. This is where people have to say, you know what? I believe what the Bible teaches about the nature of God, even though I cannot comprehend it all. Third proposition is this. Each person is fully God. What that means is that when I look at Jesus, Colossians 2 verse 9, we'll look at in a moment. Colossians 2 verse 9 tells me that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. When I'm looking at Jesus, I'm not just looking at a slice of the pie that makes up God. I am looking at the fullness of God. When I think about the Father, I'm not just thinking about a slice, one third of God. I'm thinking about the fullness of God. When I look at the Holy Spirit, I'm not just thinking about one portion, one part of who God is. He is the fullness of God. And so there's really no analogy that makes sense that fully describes what God is like. People through the years have tried to describe God and, and they look at these things and they say, well, you know, he's like a clover, three-leaf clover. Each leaf, you know, is part of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible would teach, though. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, you can't add anything to Jesus to make him more than what he already is. It's mind-blowing. It's difficult to comprehend but if we are people of faith and we believe what the Bible teaches about God, this is true of him. One being made up of three persons and each person is fully God. Now you can do one of two things at this point in the lesson. We're going to go into scripture and describe these particular principles, these ideals about God. You can jot down maybe in your notes the passages that we're going to look at. And I would, just, I would just say write down the reference because I'm going to have them on the screen. Or you can turn in your Bible, your copy of God's Word with us if you want to. It's up to you. But let's look at and keep those three things in mind. Let's look at what the Bible teaches about this and see if these things are so. Number one. Let's look at God revealed in the Old Testament. Second in your outline this morning. God is revealed in the Old Testament. 
A number of passages throughout the Old Testament indicate that there is one God who exists as three persons, and each person is fully God. A number of passages describe this or hint at this throughout the Old Testament. Very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Most little children have memorized this verse. It goes like this. In the beginning, God, and I've got it highlighted in red there on the screen behind me, created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew word, if you were to read Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew, is plural. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. When you and I make a word plural in English, we add an S to the end. God, God's, plural. If the Hebrews wanted to make a word plural, they would add add an I-M to the end of the word. El would be one. Elohim is more than one. And yet the Bible describes God using plural nouns and singular verbs. So God, plural, created singular the heavens and the earth. And right off the bat, we've got a mystery. Something curious about this God who created the heavens and the earth. You don't have to go far in the Bible to find another reference. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, very same chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, Elohim, by the way, let us make man in our likeness. That's fascinating. Here is God speaking to himself, and he says, let us make man in our image. The Bible indicates there is one God who exists in three persons, and each person is fully God, And here is God having a conversation within himself. And he uses plural terminology to have that conversation. Another passage in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. The Tower of Babel. You remember the people were building up a tower and they were wanting to reach into heaven. And there are various ideas about why they were building that tower. But ultimately it came down to this. They were trying to exalt themselves against God, against his power. And God is angry about this, and the Bible goes, Bible says this in Genesis 11, verse 7. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, they have one language, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, God says to himself, let us go down and there, and, uh, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Where did all the languages in the world come from? They originated with God. When did that happen? It happened in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. And when God said, I'm going to go down there, he didn't say I, singular. He said, let us, plural, go down there. Next passage through the Old Testament. There's one God who exists as three persons. Each person is fully God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. In the Old Testament, God wanted emphatically to make the point that there is just one being who is known as God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, and it uses the divine name, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh the Lord our God, Elohim, Yahweh is one. And so as you read through Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Jews would recite this and would repeat it constantly. This was a mantra. This was something that they would constantly be saying to one another, 
We worship one God. And one of the reasons why they did that was because they lived in a pagan polytheistic world. They lived in the midst of a number of cultures that believed in many gods. You like your God? We've got a bunch. Remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that will not be the last time in the Old or New Testament that you read a statement to that effect. There is one God, only one. 2 Samuel 7, verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. So again, throughout the Old Testament, you find statements like this. God is unique. He is singular. He is one. There's no other God besides you. That's worth contemplating and pondering as a Christian. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, Nehemiah in a prayer says this. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven. You've made the heaven of heavens with all that's in them and the earth as well. There's one God who exists as three persons, and each person is fully God. Continuing, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, Nehemiah, excuse me, Isaiah, Isaiah sees a vision of God on his throne. And after Isaiah receives cleansing, the Bible says that Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, and God's having a conversation with himself again, but it's an audible conversation that, that Isaiah can hear. Whom shall I send, singular, and who will go for us, plural? There is one God existing as three persons, and each person is fully God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes people get the idea, brothers and sisters and friends, that Jesus didn't show up. He really wasn't present through all of those Old Testament events. The Bible indicates otherwise. Sometimes people get the idea that Jesus didn't begin to exist until he was conceived in the womb of Mary. The Bible indicates otherwise. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, God talks about the coming of Christ. For to us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called, watch this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father, by the way, means the Father of Eternity, the one who has always existed. And these are titles, these are descriptions that are applied to this son who's going to be given. It's a prophecy about our Lord, about Jesus Christ. There's one God existing in three persons and each person is fully God. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. When you turn to the New Testament, the third point of your outline this morning, by the way, many, many, many other passages that we could refer to throughout this particular study. But as you begin the New, the, the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, <coughs> look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Joseph has betrothed a wife. Her name is Mary. And an angel speaks to Joseph and says, Joseph, she's going to bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. And he's going to save his people from their sins. Only God can take away sin. That's something only God can do. So this son that Mary's going to bear, we're going to call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. 
And he's going to take away sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet when he said, Behold, a, uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. When people looked at Jesus Christ, they saw somebody human. They saw a person. Mark chapter 6, is this not the carpenter's son? Don't we see his brothers and his sisters here with him and his family as well? They just saw a person. But if you look deeper, you would see there was something about Jesus that was extraordinary. It was unique. He is fully God. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him. Next. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus grows up. He begins his earthly ministry this way. He goes to John the baptizer and he says, I need to be immersed to fulfill all righteousness. John hesitates for a moment, then John agrees to baptize him. At the moment of his baptism, here's what happens in Matthew 3, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What do you see in that passage? You see the Son of God being baptized. You see the Spirit descending in bodily form, Luke says, Luke chapter 3, as a dove. And you hear the audible voice from heaven of the Father. There's one God existing as three persons. Each person is fully God. And you see different emphases on each one of those ideas as you look at these various passages throughout the New and Old Testament. Next, Matthew 28, verse 19. At the end of Matthew, when Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples, here's what he says. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of... That means by the authority of. And whose authority should we baptize people? By the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus could have just said, go baptize them in the name of God. Jesus chose to enumerate the three persons that make up God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As you read on the New Testament, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, speaking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a poetic nature to all of that, and we sometimes recite that or read it without really stopping and thinking about <coughs> the almost contradictory nature of what's being said. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How does that work logically? It's what the Bible teaches about the nature of God. There is one God existing as three persons, and each one is fully God. By the way, the Scripture goes on to say about the Word, all things were created through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the Creator. He's fully God, fully divine. In John 17, verse 24, as Jesus makes the high priestly prayer, this is a very curious statement that the Lord makes. As he's praying to his Father, and go think about that for just a minute, the idea that God, who is one, 
existing as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son prays to, speaks to the Father in John 17, verse 24. And here's what he says. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, in red on the screen, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son and loves the Father. God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And God loved even before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the world was. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, when Ananias and Sapphira bring some money and they're lying about how much they're bringing to the apostles, they lay at the apostles' feet. Peter says, Ananias, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in the very next verse, he says, you've lied to God. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters and friends, we're talking about God. We're talking about the fullness of God. Each person is fully God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul says, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is what? God is one. And so the New Testament emphasizes the same kinds of things the Old Testament does. There's one God, but he exists as three persons. And each person is fully God. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, that Lyle read for us just a moment ago, a benediction at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all mentioned in one passage. In Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, Speaking about Jesus, see to it that no one cheats you or takes you captive by philosophy and empty of deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness, the whole fullness of deity bodily. When we look at Jesus, there's nothing you can add to him to make him more divine, to make him more fully God than he already is. It's mind-boggling to think about who God is and what he's like. In Ephesians 2, verse 18, for through him, through Christ, we, Jews and Gentiles, both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Son, the Spirit, the Father, in one verse. Ephesians 4, verses four through six, the seven ones, did you know that three of them have to do with God? There is one body and one spirit, Later on, there's one Lord. Later on, there's one God and Father of all. You know, a lot of times people want to focus on unity and they want to focus on oneness and rightfully so because the Bible indicates that's a Christian ideal. But when you look at the seven ones, three of the seven are the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. As God's people, we need to emphasize who God is because it's a basis for unity. It's a reason for us to behave in a way that conforms with holiness. It's a reason for us to trust in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul writes this, there is one God. Seems like we've heard that before. In the Old Testament, God is one. In the New Testament, God is one. We've looked at other passages. 
And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's doing there? He's not saying Christ Jesus is not divine. Other passages indicate that he is. He's emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. The idea that Jesus is an equal party in our salvation. The idea that he is related equally to both men and to God and therefore he is uniquely qualified to be our mediator. To be the one that is the go-between between us and our heavenly father. Last one in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more, the Hebrews writer says, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Repeatedly throughout scripture, these three ideas are communicated to us. There is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. What are the implications of all this? When you consider these truths, and one of the things I wanted to accomplish this morning was this, I want you to see that this is not just an obscure doctrine that's found in a couple of verses and that's it. This is something that is pervasive throughout all of scripture. God is saying to you and he's saying to me, this is what I'm like, this is who I am, this is what I'm all about, and I want you to know about me, I want you to know who I am. He's saying this over and over and over to us, not so that we can just have this academic understanding of what God is like, but so that we can know him and know him personally. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. What are the implications? As you think about the triune, the three-in-one nature of God, number one, this impacts the integrity of Scripture. Either the Bible tells the truth or it doesn't. Either the Bible is accurate in what it reveals about God or it is not. And the Bible makes some statements that are tough for us to wrap our minds around. There is nobody who is quite like God. He is one of a kind. Titus chapter 1 verse 2, the Bible indicates that God cannot lie. In 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, the Bible tells us that all scripture is given to us by inspiration and it's all profitable for us. There is benefit and there is blessing in knowing about these things. Second, brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus accepted worship. He himself says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. If Jesus Christ is not divine, and if he's not fully divine, then what we did this morning when we observed the Lord's Supper was idolatry. If it's not true that he is God, if it's not true that he is fully God, then we are idolatrous and we are polygamous. Uh, 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 excuse me. We are polytheists. We're not married to many wives. <laughs> we need to think about, I'm using all these big words, I'm sorry need to think about who Jesus is. Jesus claimed equality with God. He said to people while he was here on earth, before Abraham was, I am. John chapter 8 verse 58. And again, the Bible says, in the beginning the word was with God and the word was God. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Christians, number four, are monotheistic. Throughout scripture, the Bible emphasizes the principle there is one God, there's one being known as God. He is not three separate beings. 
We need to be careful how we describe him, how we talk about him. By the way, tonight in our lesson, we're going to look at some of the errors that have been propagated about God over the centuries. And some exist yet today around us with our religious friends and neighbors. We need to make sure what we're saying about God is accurate. It's right. Christian, are you a polytheist? Do you worship many gods? No, I believe in one God. There's only one. He exists as three persons, and each one is fully God. There is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Number five. This doctrine helps us to understand some things about God. When the Bible makes statements about God and his attributes, it says, for example, 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. Have you ever stopped to consider that in order for love to exist, there have to be two parties? In order for love to exist, there has to be one who loves and there has to be the object of love. And so when Jesus says in John 17, 24, you have loved me since the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that helps us to understand some things about God's attributes. When we talk about righteousness, righteousness has to do with being in step, just like an army marching in step down the street and everybody's feet hit the ground at the same point. Righteousness means that there's two parties and we're in step with each other. And the Bible indicates that God is righteous in all of his ways. Question, was God righteous before he said, let there be light? Answer, yes, because the Father and the Son and the Spirit have always been in step with each other. They have always been right with each other. There has never been disagreement or conflict. So how is God love? How is God righteous? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the nature of God reveals these things to us. Last, Jesus is the only mediator. He's the only one. There is nobody else who can do what Jesus can do for you. Nobody else can approach God for you. Nobody else can bring you to him. And the reason why he's uniquely our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, is because he is fully divine. He wants the same things that God wants because he is God. And yet he understands like nobody else what it's like to be human because he took on flesh for us. He is uniquely our mediator. And as New Testament Christians, when we talk about who God is, brothers and sisters and friends, if we don't get these things right, we are gonna have a very skewed view of how we are saved. We're gonna have a very terrible understanding of what God desires with our lives. We need to hold up the scripture and we need to tell the world, this is who God is. This is what he's like. He is amazing. He is wonderful in all of his ways. And there's only one way to come to him. It's through Jesus Christ, his son, John 14, verse 6. Maybe you need to know God. Listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has the power to save you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. If you'll let the words of Scripture touch your heart, if you'll agree with those words, if you will accept those words, and if you'll obey those words, you can find a relationship with the God that we've been talking about this morning. 
And the way to do that is by accepting the gift that Jesus Christ has already made available to all of us at the cross. He died for your sins. Believe in him. Repent of the sin that's in your life. I've been living contrary to the will of God and I wanna start living for him. Confess that Jesus really is God. He really is the Lord. Be baptized. When we're baptized, we are immersed with Christ and we are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2 verse 38. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, if you need to respond and ask for prayers, heaven's invitation is yours while we stand and while we sing.